All right, y'all, let's go ahead and take our seats. So the psalm is going to be Psalm 113. This is what we're going to use to pray. It goes like this. It has uh, the Lord is high and he's over all nations. And it starts talking about how high and lifted up he is, uh, how he's above the heavens and above all creatures in the heavenlies and on earth, uh, how he's incomparable. Uh, and then it says he's the God that looks far down. And when he looks far down, it says he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap and then makes you sit with princes and kings in all glory. So that's what we're going to pray. We're going to pray that uh, God who is above all things and we who are not, but that we actually kind of live in the realm of the dust and many times in our life sit on the ash heap, uh, that these words here say that you are poor and needy. Now, being poor means that you're afflicted. Uh, and, you, and living in this life, you're afflicted, the Bible says. And living in this life, you're needy, which means poor. Uh, so we're afflicted, we're needy, and he loves to lift you up. And then it ends by saying, all praise to the name of the Lord on high. So God actually gets glory and gets praise by looking down on you, lifting you up, and moving you out of the dust and out of the ash heap. So this is such incredible news. So if you're in the dust and you're in the ash heap, you're actually in a place that can glorify God. So let's ask him to lift us up. Let's pray together. So Lord, you alone are the only high, mighty king. And the text says that you alone look far down because you're so mighty, the most high, that you're above all things, all creatures, heavenly, on earth. And we acknowledge that we are uh, those that are numbered among the poor, afflicted, distressed, uh, turned upside down, and among the needy uh, who are in the dust and sitting on the ash heap. And so right now, we are going to ask that you would lift us up. And so we do right now. We ask that you would make us kings and queens and sit us with the princes and the ones that sit on thrones and flourish. Lord, we pray for our loved ones and we pray for our friends and we pray for the person to the left of us and the right of us that you would lift them out of the dust, you would lift them out of the ash heap, uh, that you would raise them and put them with princes and kings and queens.
Father, we pray for your church because you've done that for your people. In one cosmic, epic, uh, renting and changing of the heavens and the earth, you have lifted up your people from the ash heap, and you have sat them on the thrones with kings and queens and princes and princesses. And so, Lord, because that's true, uh, we're able to actually um, move from the ash heap in our experience and move from the dust in our daily experience. And so, Lord, would you grant your church to be awakened to that reality, grant your church to be awakened that because you, Jesus, descended and you, Jesus, rose and then ascended on high and took your throne, that you actually took us with you. And that a recovery of that and an awakening of that uh, would have so much spiritual blessing and so much spiritual fruit in your church and in your people. Uh, One of them would be like this phenomenal, energizing hope and this ability to uh, not look inward but look outward, this ability to then move towards others who are in the dust and in the ash heap and to actually approach them and actually enter into where they're at, to actually maybe just sit with them in the ash heap, not even say anything but sit with them and be with them. And then you open doors to actually speak words of raising life to them. So, Lord, we ask that your church would be the kind of place that goes into the ash heap and goes into the dust and proclaims there's a one who lifts up. There's a one who sets on high. There's a one who forgives. There's a one who restores. There's a one who puts back together uh, human beings. And Lord, we pray that you would grant that here in Waco. We pray that you would grant that in your church all over the world. We pray that um, you would move like this in our life. You would move like this in Redeemer. You would move like this in the city of Waco. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so I have the, uh, I think the mic is doing a little bit, and it's my fault. It's not their fault, because I should have a collared shirt on, and I do not. Uh, The reason why is I'm going to be running right out of here to go help, because I'm help coach a seven-on-seven team that has a big Baylor tournament at Baylor University on the field. Um, So that's, I'm dressing so that I can just throw a sweatshirt on (laughs) and a ball cap on and go do my other job. All right, here we go. Uh, Let's say... um, We're in Acts 4. Let's say you're a revolutionary. That seems to be in style today. Everybody wants to be a revolutionary. Let's say you're an American, 1776, the American Revolution, or you're in France in 1789, uh, the French Revolution, or Russia, 1917, the Great Bolshevik, or Germany in 1930s, the rise of the Reich and the rise of Nazism, or in China in 1966, the Great Proletariat Cultural Revolution. Or just America in the 2020s with all the stuff that's going on with us right now. Um, Here's the question. You're a revolutionary. How do you change the world? You're a revolutionary. You want to change the world. What 
changes the world. I mean, truly. What goes beyond moving things around but actually gets down into the very nature of things and maybe lifts them up? Are you a leader? Let's say you're a leader of an institution like Baylor University or a public school, a local school or a local business. Uh, maybe you're a leader on a team. You're the coach. You're a player. Uh, maybe you're the leader of your friends or the family or the bowling league. Or maybe you're a leader in the city. You're an elected official. Uh, maybe you're a church leader, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, church staff, a ministry team leader. Here's the question for you. How do you change people and places? What changes people and places? Right? I mean, when you're a leader, you think about these things, right? You do vision statements and you do mission statements and you want to make a change. Well, I'm asking you, this text is asking you, great, how do you do that? Like, really, as opposed to just getting your little team together and everybody gets hyped and says, yeah, but no one believes it. How do you really do that? All right, let's say you're a Christian and you long for a revival. You long for a spiritual awakening. You long for God to pour out his spirit, like in an extraordinary way, so much so that multitudes and multitudes of people are being reached and renewed by Jesus. Like, on the spot, it starts happening. Let's say that, let's say that you just forget the whole, like, revival or awakening. You just want God to work. You just want him to work in your own life and, like, your own relationships and maybe in your own home or with your own parents or with your own children. And maybe your friends are at school or on your team. You just want him to work. Let's say, okay, I don't, revival, that's for you professional people, but I just want him to see him work. Does he still work? Personally, maybe you just long to deeply connect with God. You know, you just want God to be a little more clear in your mind, a little more real in your heart, a little more energizing in your life. Maybe you just long for God to, like, change you. Not in a stupid way, but, like, you know, you know that there are areas you just hate about yourself. You feel miserable about yourself in those areas. And you just can't seem to change. You know you should, and deep down you want to, but you can't. You just want to change. Maybe you have a relationship with a child, you just want it to change. And you have a relationship with your spouse, you just want it to change. Or a relationship with your jerk of a neighbor, you just want it to change. How does it happen? Does it happen? And then you're thinking, like, can I be a part of it? Maybe a revival or something happening. And then what is my part in change and that whole thing? 
When Nancy and I were in campus ministry, we, the campus staff, when we were in Boston, we used to talk a lot, like a lot, about reaching the 300 plus thousand college students in Boston. And then we would also talk about reaching the city of Boston. And we would talk about changing the whole world. And we would talk about reaching the whole world. And we envisioned it and we prayed for it and we strategized and planned for it. I mean, we had methods and strategies and plans of reaching and changing 300,000 college students, a complete total spiritual awakening in a city absolutely changing the world strategically and planting campus ministries all over key capital cities all over the United States and all over the world. We spoke it, we taught it, we preached it, we proclaimed it, we publicized it, we small grouped it, we conferenced it, we retreated it. We missioned it, we evangelized it, we discipled it, we trained it, we mobilized it. We worked incredibly hard for it. This went on for my life for about eight years. Every day, every week, every month, every year, reach, change the world. Every once in a while, I doubt it. Are we reaching the city? Are we even reaching this one campus? Uh, are we changing Boston? Are we changing the world? Are we making a dent? Are we making a dent? Is anything happening at all? Will it ever happen? But then I would like tap into the Hudson Taylor in me. I'd bring him up again and I'd hear, dream a dream so big that unless God intervenes, it will never fail. God's work done God's way never leads to God's lack of supply. I used to ask God for help. Then I asked if I might help him do his work through me. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It's a command to be obeyed. And then I'd get back in the work. Yes. Right? Now, Nancy was a little more, how do I say, discerning. Honey, do you realize we say the same thing every week, every month? every semester, every year. And it never happens. Do we have the wrong mission? What is the mission, honey? And I'd look at her and I'd say, honey, you're such a missional downer. I said, you need to accept Hudson Taylor into your heart. What? What's the mission? It's just a simple question. But that question drives churches and drives Christians and drives cultures and drives church history and drives you. It drives you because if you're not in it, you feel it. And you feel like you should be doing whatever the mission is. And then if you're in it, you wonder, are you doing the right mission? What is the mission? Here's what we're going to do. This is a longer text. These first texts, Acts 1, 2, 3, they're all like one stories, which is interesting, the whole chapter. 
So there's 31 verses. So we're going to sit for a little bit, and we're going to stand towards the end. So here we go. It says, let's put verse 1 up there, and as they were speaking to the people. So and is just telling us that it's continuing what happened in Acts 3. So what happened in Acts 3? Someone born broken was healed. Well, when did it happen that this person born broken was just healed? It was about 20 minutes ago. So we're in a place that's 20 minutes after this miraculous thing happens. So what's happening now in Acts 4 is that two guys are explaining to everybody because they're seeing this person born broken, now not broken, and now two apostles are trying to tell everybody what it really means. Everybody's trying to interpret it. They're trying to tell them what it really means. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, which are the pastors, and the captain of the temple, which is the temple police, and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, I just have to do this because otherwise you just, you don't get the text. The Sadducees are the ruling class. They're the wealthy elites. They own all the land. They're the landlords. They're also people that are theologically naturalists. So they're in the temple atmosphere, but they're naturalists. It means this. They have an anti-supernatural view of the world. So they don't believe that God is presently at work or acting in Israel or in the world. That would be supernatural because they're anti-supernaturalists. They're naturalists. They don't believe that there's a resurrection from the dead. They don't believe that because that's supernatural. They're naturalists. So in Israel thought, they, didn't, they had no concept of an individual in human history, in the middle of human history, rising from the dead. That's on no one's radar. No one's radar. It's no, no one's radar in the ancient world. That's not even a concept in any religion. But there was an idea that at the end of all things, when the world ends, that there's some sort of like the good people certainly resurrect in some way. That's what the Sadducees did not even believe in that. That was known in Israel to be part of the theology, but not here. All right, so the pastors, the police, and the ruling class came upon them. The images came upon them as like a predator on prey. And they were greatly annoyed, right? Which means they are offended. That's kind of our language today, right? We're offended. Well, that's, they were offended. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the press conference would go like this. These people are not experts like us. They're spreading disinformation. We need to stop it. No more speaking at Jerusalem University to our young minds. And we're going to cancel all their accounts and social media. Right? That's kind of how the press conference would go. And they arrested them and put them in custody till the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. Now, this is not even part of the sermon, but I just want to say it since it's right here. If you like want to have more faith, if you want to have more faith, you want to believe more, you want to believe deeper, brighter, better, bigger, according to this text, you hear first, then you believe. It's so interesting. Acts chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers, the ruling class, and elders, the church leaders, and the scribes, the Bible experts, gathered together in Jerusalem. With Annas, the high priest, the lead pastor, Caiaphas, his assistant, John and Alexander, the church staff, and all who were of the priestly family. 
And when they, 71 of them, called the Sanhedrin, had set them in the midst of them, surrounded them, they inquired, by what power, by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, like what could possibly be wrong in, in your eyes with this, is basically what Peter's saying. By what means this man was healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, this is unbelievable, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, not experts, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, some folks interpret this as a positive thing, like, oh, these are the ones that were with Jesus. That's why they're so amazing. Right? No, it's not that. It's actually a negative thing. It's more like, we know these dudes. Oh, I know these dudes. These are the cowards that fled when we arrested and killed Jesus. These are the ones we told the big whopper about. You know, we said that these guys, with their bare hands, overcame the most highly trained, lethal soldiers in the world and stole the body. These are the ones. But seeing that the man was healed and standing beside them, they had nothing else to say in opposition. Dang. <laughs> the dude is healed. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to everyone in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it won't spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. We have to cancel them. All right, let's stand here. So they called the men and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot speak of what we have seen. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Everybody knew this guy. And when they were released, they went to their friends. This is the first time the church is called friends. Isn't that amazing? I didn't even know if there's another place in the Bible that it says that. But this is at the beginning of the church, and the church is called friends, a community of and reported what the chief priests, pastors, elders, church leaders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, so someone's probably, one person's leading this prayer. They didn't all spontaneously start reciting the same scripture at the same time. This is probably one person leading everyone. But isn't it interesting that it's the word of God, again, that's doing the work. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who by the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, would you seal in us what the mission of the church is? So this is the mission of the church. This is the mission of God's people. Uh, There are many, many missions once this one gets settled. So, O Lord, establish this mission ever more deeply in us. And may it give us hope and life and courage and bravery and, yes, boldness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what's the mission? We need to establish what the mission is. Even just as I was praying, I'm like, yes, there... There's one mission, and this is what we're going to look at. But this one mission energizes everything in life. It doesn't pull you out of the real world. This one mission starts pushing you into the real world, into the dust and the ashes, into being a coach and a teacher, into being a professor at Baylor, into being a student, into being an athlete, into going for a walk and reading a book. It pushes you into real life. It is the engine of all things. And once we have it down, we can be a little less confusing, a little less conflicted, a little less like, I don't know, just not being able to tell people what Christianity in the church is all about. So it's a big deal. What is the mission? Well, some form of speaking is mentioned in this text over 20 times. Like, I'm trying to remember a passage that I preached on that a word keeps showing up in one form or another or in one tense or another that many times in one segment, in one pericope, in one story, and I can't. Over 20 times in this text, some form of speaking, 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 speaking is everywhere, Speaking, speaking, speaking is in every place. Speaking, speaking, speaking is the oxygen of the text, right? It drives everything. It moves everything. It accomplishes everything. It fills everything. It does everything. Speaking does, in this text and the rest of Acts, mighty acts, mighty wonders, mighty signs. So you go like, okay, what are the signs and what are the wonders in Acts? And the answer from Acts is speaking. Speaking heals in this text. Rise and walk. Speaking saves in this text. Speaking comforts. Speaking forgives. Speaking justifies, and we'll explain some of this stuff later. Speaking sanctifies. You remember we talk about life change? That speaking changes lives. 
speaking. Speaking in this text connects people with God in deeper, real ways. It connects people with each other in friendship and community. Speaking. Speaking connects people to mission, to meaningful participation with God in this world. Speaking. What is the mission, according to the first church? Speaking. Speaking shakes everything. And when they had prayed, and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So let's ask it another way. What's the first thing? What's the first thing that happens when Jesus ascends? Acts 1. What's the first thing that happens when Jesus ascends, takes the throne, is crowned king of kings of heaven and earth, What's the first thing that happens when Jesus ascends, Acts 1, the Holy Spirit descends, Acts 2, simultaneously, what's the first thing that happens? The Holy Spirit comes down, the life-giving spirit is given, the kingdom comes, what's the first thing that happens? Speaking. Quote, and they were filled with the spirit and began to... Okay, well, what's the second thing that happens? Everyone goes into the city and speaks. Okay, what's the third thing that happens? Peter stands up and speaks. Speaking shakes everything. But let's ask it another way. What's the first thing the first church in the history of the world does? What's its mission? Speaking. All right, let's ask it one other way. This is a really important way because this is the most controversial way. This is the most controversial subject in all of Acts. So when the Holy Spirit fills the first people in the first church in the history of the world, what happens? They speak. Well, wait a minute. I, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're asking my question right, Jeff. I don't think you understand what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say, Jeff, how do you know when the Holy Spirit is present? How do you know when the Holy Spirit's active? How do you know when the Holy Spirit shows up in a place? According to Acts, there's lots of speaking. Okay, okay, but, but how do you... How do you look for a spirit-filled church, Jeff? Like, I, I want to go to a spirit-filled church in Waco, or we're moving, we want to go to a spirit-filled church. How do I know it's a spirit-filled church? According to Acts, they speak a lot. Speaking shakes everything. So Peter speaks first, right? This is the first sermon that's ever preached. He speaks first. We saw that in Acts 2. It's the first thing that happens when Jesus sends, the Holy Spirit comes down. We got that. How long did he speak? I don't know. What, 45 minutes? I mean, how long did they preach back then? I don't know how long they preached back then. But when Peter is speaking, 3, 
thousand souls rise and walk. Rise and walk. Okay, so then a couple days later, that was the first time, a couple days later, the second sermon ever preached in the history of the church. In other words, a church sermon. I'm not talking about Old Testament sermons. There were lots of those. I'm talking about a church sermon. Peter speaks again. How long did he speak? I don't know, 45 minutes? And while Peter speaks, the text tells us 2,000 souls rise and walk. So the first church in the world is now 5,000 plus strong. Why? Because of speaking. Because of two sermons. Speaking changes everything. Speaking shapes, shakes everything. All right. The mission of the church. What's the mission of the church? According to Acts, according to the first church, you know, we want to follow the first church. We want to go back to the first church. Everybody wants to go back to the first church. Everyone wants to know what did the first church did. It's like, if we could just see what the first church did, maybe that's what's missing in us. Well, here's what we know about the first church so far. We know that the mission of the first church, the first church that ever existed, the first thing that happens, the mission is clear. Speaking. All right, so here's help number one. We're going to have some help. There's going to be three helps now for those groups that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. This help is for everyone who struggles with spiritual FOMO, the fear of spiritually missing out. Do you struggle with that? If you live in Waco, you do, because that's the whole church scene in Waco. Everyone fears that something's happening over there that's not happening where they're at, so they move over there. The fear of spiritually missing out. All right, this is for us. So... What's fascinating, though, when you look through the major revolutionary movements in history, just the natural ones, like the revolutions and stuff, there's a lot of FOMO going on. It almost seems like it drives everything. But here's the question. How do you change the world? What changes the world? Remember, that's the group. So you really want to change the world. It's a big thing today. It's always been a big thing. It's almost like it's a first world problem, though, sometimes. So how do you change the world? Well, remember what Dr. Jones says. I mentioned that when Dr. Jones says, if you're going to really understand the truth, two things have to happen. So for you and I to get the truth, to understand something, we have to be told the truth, and then we have to be told the not truth. Because when we are understanding truth, we have to not only see what it is, but we have to see what it's not in order to truly embrace it and understand it and have it clear to your mind and eventually, by the Holy Spirit, real in your heart. So remember that. So the first church in the world is 5,000 plus strong because of two sermons, because of speaking. True. What's not true, it's not because of two emotional revival meetings. Two sermons speaking. It's not because of two moving worship events, which means a worship event today means singing. So not because of two moving singing events. Two sermons speaking. 
It's not because of two high church liturgy services. Two sermons speaking. It's not because of two spiritual discipline seminars. Two sermons speaking. It's not because of two spiritual formation retreats. And I can keep going on. Two days of fasting and surrendering and yielding and Lent and church traditions and special anointing. Two sermons speaking. So please hear me. You're like, oh, jeepers. Wow. That was bold. I am not saying don't do those things. And I'm not saying those things are bad. Here's what I am saying. Beware of the hype. Here's what I am saying. When those other things become the answer, when those other things become the answer to what's missing in your life, the answer to what's missing in the church, the answer to what's missing in Christianity, when that happens and speaking is replaced by them, or speaking is devalued by them. When that happens, here's what you need to do. Run. Run away. All right, so let's go back to the first church in the world is 5,000 plus strong and literally changes the world. Okay, so these 5,000 folks, you're here because of these 5,000 folks. Literally the world has changed because of them. So this is a real thing. So remember that the world has legitimately, truly changed because of two sermons and speaking. Not because of two weeks of social justice protests. I know, I know. I'm going where I shouldn't go, but I can't help myself. Two sermons speaking. Not because of two semesters of higher education indoctrination. Two sermons speaking. Not because of two years of one political party finally having control. Two sermons speaking. And please hear me, I'm not saying that those things don't change anything. I'm saying they don't really change the world. Rise up and walk changes the world. I'm saying they don't truly connect lives and relationships and work and families and schools and education and home. They don't truly connect them to God. Rise up and walk does. They don't truly connect people to people. And true friendship and community rise up and walk does. They don't truly connect people to a meaningful mission in life, to truly connect with the way God has made the world and to actually participate in the good and the beautiful and the true in the world. Rise up and walk does. What is the mission? Answer speaking. Speaking. Speaking shakes the world. 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you want to change the world? That's my question. Do you want to change the world? If someone would have came to me and said, Jeff, do you want to change the world? I would have said, heck yeah, but other language. Speak. What did you just say? Speak. That's the last thing I would have thought. All right, help number two. This is for leaders. How do you change your part of the world? You're a leader. If you're a leader, you've been given a part of the world. How do you change that part of the world? How do people and places in your part of the world change, leader? How do they? Answer, speaking with boldness. Verse 13, now when they, these are the most, they is the most powerful people in Jerusalem, right? The ones that killed and crucified Jesus just weeks earlier. You know, a month earlier? I mean, it's like February for us, it would have been somewhere in January, maybe late December for them, that Jesus was just killed. And these are the people that did it. And then all of us sitting here too, Right? And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. What is boldness? Boldness is courage. Boldness is confidence. Boldness is bravery. Boldness is fearlessness. Why do you, leaders, need to speak with boldness? Answer number one, because you won't without it. A leader will not speak without boldness. And now, Lord, verse 29, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We have to ask for boldness because we don't have it naturally. Do you see what they're saying? They know what's at stake here. They know that they are now being threatened. They now know they are being watched. And they've come together, and they're actually like, they're quoting the Psalm 1 where it says, everyone aligns themselves against God, and God laughs at the alignment. And they're like, but we're kind of not, you're laughing, but we're kind of scared. We don't know what to do. This is the beginning of the mission. This is the beginning of something that's, Happening for the first time in the history of the world. We don't know what to do. And so what did they do? They prayed, oh God, give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us fearlessness. To speak. You have to be asked for it because it's not natural. Boldness is not something that comes natural to us. Boldness is something that you must be given. Boldness is not something achieved. Boldness is something received. What is natural to you and me, leaders, what is natural to you and me is feeling inferior. What? Are you saying Napoleon? Heck yeah, that drove that dude. Are you saying, Alexander? Yes, I am. Are you? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. 
What's natural to a human emotional state is feeling inferior. What's natural to a human emotional state is cowardness. What's natural to a human natural state is fear, anxiety. It comes with your nature. Leaders, if you are to speak, you have to have boldness. And that comes from God. So what do you do? Answer number two, um, you ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So look at this, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the rulers and the people and elders, remember what happened? Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they speak to, he speaks to the rulers and elders, and now all these powerful people in the world, the ruling class, the elites, the most powerful people in Jerusalem, see it and are like, that's amazing. Their boldness is amazing because I don't have that boldness. Their boldness is amazing because I don't have that bravery. Their boldness is amazing because I don't have that confidence. Their boldness is amazing because I don't have courage like that. Where does that come from? And they were astonished, right? So the question is, how are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And the answer from this text is by being filled with the Word of God. That's crazy. By being filled with the spoken word of God. That's crazy. If Paul was here, he'd say, listen, the way you're filled with the Holy Spirit is by being filled up with Jesus and his good news. The way you're filled with the Holy Spirit is actually by growing in your faith and your trust in Jesus and his good news. The way that you're actually being filled up with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is more present, and the Holy Spirit is more active, and there's more fruit of the Holy Spirit, is when you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, who he is and what he's accomplished. It's amazing. So when you take the diamond of Jesus and all that he's accomplished, and you just take one cut of that diamond, that one side of that diamond gives you a filling of the Holy Spirit. And then you start learning more aspects of the wonder of the one diamond of who Jesus is and all he's accomplished, and each breathtaking cut fills you with the Holy Spirit. One of the most gifted theologians in our day, who's just furthering the work of some other gifted theologians in the earlier day, guys like Voss, uh, and this guy's name is Gaffin, he says this about being filled with the Holy Spirit. For the spirit to be at work in the inner self, so for the spirit to be at work in your inner person, is for Christ to dwell in your heart. Christ indwelling the heart means the spirit is powerfully present in the inner self. In other words, being filled with the Holy Spirit is being filled with Jesus. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is being filled with the gospel. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is Paul saying, I pray that you would be strengthened with power in your innermost being by the Holy Spirit so that Jesus dwells in your heart with faith. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You want boldness. You grow in the gospel. So now I'm talking to Christians, right? That sounds so amazing because for me, most of my life, I was like, gospel, gospel, gospel. I kept thinking everyone was talking about evangelism because gospel was what the unbeliever needs to hear, not what the Christian needs to hear. How many times do I... I know what I need for a Christian. I mean, Christians every Christmas and, and this time of the year at Easter, we look at Jesus, we look at the gospel because 
We look in our rearview mirror because he's behind us, and we just want to, yeah, okay, I remember he became, yeah, he died for my sins, great, that's good, but I've got to drive this car, and I need something else to look through. I need a front windshield to drive the car. And then different traditions come along, and they say, hey, Jeff, here's the theological windshield that you need. And another tradition comes along and says, hey, to live the Christian life and to be a Christian, here's the other windshield that you must look through to drive the Christian car. Oh, and then another one comes over and says, hey, man, have you heard of these biblical principles? Hey, have you heard of what you're missing in the Christian life? Hey, have you learned how to, like, access and tap into the Holy Spirit? Hey, have you learned how to really, hey, hey, hey. And this text says, Jesus is the front windshield. The gospel is the front windshield. And when you are growing in the gospel, you are growing in the Christian life, and you are being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's amazing how simple. Answer number two, how do you leaders speak with boldness? You've got to be filled. You've got to have boldness because it's not natural to you, so you've got to ask for it. Well, how do you get it? Well, you, the Holy Spirit gives it, so you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you do that? Well, you've got to be on this journey of learning to build your messy life around Jesus. And the second thing is that you need to be a witness, not a lawyer. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we can't speak of what we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So here's what happens. What does a witness do? A witness, what does a witness do? A witness is called because they're going to speak about what they've seen and heard. And so when a witness is brought before you, and so leader, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to be a witness, which means you've got to be someone that speaks about what they've seen and heard. In other words, the truth is going to pass through you. See, what a lawyer does is a lawyer doesn't speak about what they've seen and heard. A lawyer argues a case. Leader, you're not a lawyer, you're a witness. And so what a lawyer does is the truth passes by them as they argue their case. But a witness, the truth passes through you because you speak of what you've seen and heard. We need leaders we need witnesses in the church. We need people that speak about what they've seen and heard. What is the mission? Speaking. Speaking boldly shakes everything. So you want to be a leader? Speak boldly. All right, help number three, and this is it. This is for those who long for more. Remember that last one, you long for revival or awakening. If that's not you, you're like, that's just like pie in the sky, man. You're like my wife. What? A, yes, we say that all the time. It never happens. Okay. You just long for God to act in your own life. You just long for God to act in relationships, in the church, and in Waco. You just long for that. Or you just long for connecting deeply with God, and you just want him to see change in your life. You want to see change in your kids, your marriage, whatever, right? You long for more. I want you to know that everyone who longs for more, according to church history, you're the most vulnerable people to be sold a bag of goods. Just want you to know that. I'm in that camp. Everyone's in that camp. When you long for more, you're ready for something. 
So what is the help for you? How does it happen? Does it happen? How does God work? Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While Now, this is amazing. While. What's happening? We're speaking. And while we're speaking, do you see it? You stretch out your hand to heal. Oh, my word. While they're speaking, Jesus stretches out his hand and heals. While they're speaking, Jesus stretches out his hand and loves and comforts and gives mercy. While speaking, Jesus stretches out his hands, takes hold of you, connects with you, makes himself known to you, gives faith to you, starts reaching you. While speaking, Jesus stretches forth his hand and forgives you and cleanses you and removes the stain of sin in your life and gives you his own righteousness and the mighty works of his own obedience. While speaking, Jesus gives you his spirit, his resurrected life. And you have new thinking and new feeling and new desiring and new doing and boldness. While speaking, Jesus stretches forth his hand and gives you himself. What's the mission? Speaking. Speaking shakes everything. Do you long for more? Be spoken to. Verse 